Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nakam Siegel Network. Phil Goldfeder away this week. And we've come to this, folks. I'm sure the whole world is watching what is going on in Washington, not just here domestically and our audience that's being affected by it, although you might not feel the effects of the federal government shutdown at this point. But supposedly, if you're going to be flying soon, you probably will. If you have business with the federal government, I'm sure you probably will. You probably have already. If you are looking for a mortgage, you might. If you're looking for some kind of government approval for something, whether it's uh, some kind of application, um, whether you're looking for some kind of civil matter in federal court, there are a lot of things that affect our everyday lives that are handled by the federal government. To say nothing of visiting federal parks and museums and things that we kind of take for granted on a daily basis that make essentially the proverbial trains run on time. Well, that's not happening now for more than 20 days. And it just doesn't seem to get any better. I know we've talked about that. I feel, you know, we've had shutdowns before and they were very brief and they were always this idea that, okay, somebody's going to fold. We've gotten to the point of brinksmanship and we're not going to go over the brink. And now at this point, it seems that we've actually gone over the brink. We're actually headed to a spot where our leadership in Washington can't actually agree on very basics. They can't even agree, actually, about what happened in a given meeting. And that, in and of itself, I know we're very tribal, we're very partisan. Everybody looks at it and says, okay, well, I'm my team and your team, and it's kind of like a sporting event, so one side should lose, one side should win, or put it vice versa, one side will win. One side will lose, but that's never been the way politics has worked. It's always been the fact that one side will get something and the other side will get something, particularly in this case, especially. You know, it's almost as if, and, you know, I say this as a Republican, the Republicans don't realize in Washington that the Democrats have actually won the House, that they lost the House, they lost the House pretty badly. And they don't want to fess up to the idea that there's a divided government in Washington and that you have to give the Democrats something in order to get things done. They're basically just saying, okay, we're not going to get anything done. But that doesn't work. Right? We can't just say we're not going to get anything done. We have a government to run. The government has to function. The government has to exist. We need government to do something. I, if you want, I want to travel... I need government to do that. I want to buy products. I need government to approve them. We have regulation that we probably have way too much regulation. Government needs to collect taxes. We need to have tax refunds. There's all kinds of functions that government has to fulfill in order for our economy and our society to function. And we can't just say, oh, you know what, we just can't agree on this issue, so therefore we're just going to shut it down because we've made everything into a zero-sum game. And I know that the president fashions himself as the master of the deal, a master of getting deals done. He has his tried-and-true negotiating tactics of, of always of brinksmanship, and 
It's been chronicled throughout the years that the president you know, has done this with bankers and, and has always been a master of renegotiation. And he's been very successful at that, of also reinventing himself and coming out of very hard situations and coming out unscathed, in fact, probably looking like the winner, even when, in fact, he probably may not have actually won. But in this case, there really isn't any incentive. We've actually backed ourselves, or he's backed himself, and the Republicans have backed themselves into kind of this binary decision. Either we get a wall and win, or we don't get the wall and we lose. And we could have had, we could have salvaged it at the end of the year. If you remember, the everybody thought they had a deal, a billion and a half dollars in funding for the border, of added funding for the border, and they just have a continuing resolution. They keep the government open. And everybody thought the president was on board, and the Senate passed it, and the House passed it. And that was, remember, all Republican rule. And then the president didn't sign it because he wanted the wall. And I get that he wants the wall, and I get there are a lot of Republicans that want the wall, and I get there are a lot of Americans who want the wall. And there's no question that immigration is a top-tier issue. In fact, it's probably the biggest issue for... It's Sorry, it's the top issue for many Americans more than any other issue, meaning that if, you, if Americans are asked to list their top issues, immigration kind of hovers in the 20 to 25 percent range more than any other issue and it definitely it's an issue we have a broken immigration system that kind of cuts both ways i mean some people might cite immigration because they feel that the united states is too restrictive as well as opposed to too permissive but the question is this this is a policy dispute we all have to have confidence that our leadership wants to do what's best for the country. I don't always feel that. I think that there are plenty of politicians who have some very wrong-headed ideas. Well, maybe we'll get to some of them later in the show, particularly here in New York and in New York City. But that's just my political view. Other people might feel otherwise. And we see kind of this making of the other side into enemies coming into play here. And that's never really been the way that Washington has worked or functioned. I mean, we've, the rhetoric has always been there, but now it's kind of seeped into the practicality of it, of actually not allowing government to function because we have a single issue that we need that we're taking a stand on. And everybody expects it's a big game of chicken. Everybody expects the other side to fold. But in fact, from my point of view, the president has way overplayed his hand here. And getting up out of, I mean, I'm going, first of all, going in the primetime addresses, I thought were ridiculous on both sides. Okay, I don't even understand how anybody thought that this made a lot of sense to sit behind it and just to repeat speeches that everybody has said before. Did we really need to miss primetime TV? Not that I'm a consumer of it, but do we really need to miss primetime TV? In, in preempt whatever was on in order to hear more of the same of both. And I got to tell you, Chuck and Nancy, get two podiums next time. It doesn't look good. 
I don't think the president looked particularly good either. The whole the whole thing was was absolutely ridiculous. I, I it just did from this person's point of view. I, I just don't even understand, you know, okay, let's create this urgency, let's create this national spectacle of something. All we do is, ha- all we're talking about is people who just can't agree with each other. Okay, go into a room and work it out. Then they go into a room yesterday, the president invites them to the White House, and the president walks out of the meeting because he's not going to get the wall. So that's the problem is if you've made it to a point that all the only thing you can take as victory is going to be the wall, you have to incentivize the other side to approve the wall. But the problem is that the Democrats in November ran, in effect, against the wall as a symbol of what they don't like about the Republicans and the Trump administration. So why would they go ahead and approve it? And politically, it just doesn't make sense. And now the Republicans do what's best for them politically, and they're doing that, or they feel is best for them politically. I'm not sure. I think keeping the government closed which is essentially what the government with the because the Democrats are willing to open the government without conditions. The Republicans, for all the spin, the Republicans are not willing to open the government without conditions, meaning the Democrats are basically saying, okay, we'll continue things as they are. And which should be acceptable, meaning that if you can't agree on big policy issues and big policy changes, which essentially was what a wall would be then we're not going to then we're we'll we'll keep the status quo but the republicans aren't saying that so they're saying well we need this major league policy change we need funding for a border wall and we need you to approve it in order to keep the government open so if you dig deep into it it's really the republicans i think who are more vulnerable here and Look, they've thrown a lot out there. They've thrown a lot. The terrorism thing, which, of course, you know, is not even remotely true about terrorists coming across the southern border. Um, why would you go across? Why would you do that if you could just fly into the United States, which essentially, you know, many times um, has happened or come. But either way, um, most contraband and illicit drugs comes across the United States. And if you watched some of these shows about drug trafficking, it's all coming in very, very creative and inventive ways across the legal border crossings. And in fact, now we have a situation where we're not paying our staff, we're not paying our border patrol customs and border patrol, uh, border protection agents and we're not paying our homeland security people because of the shutdown in order to beef up our homeland security. So we kind of have this a little bit, what I'm saying is an absurd situation. But the real issue here is, in fact, is you, when you paint yourself into a corner in a negotiation, it's very difficult to dig your way out. And that's essentially what the president is experiencing now is, okay, I've staked everything on the wall. For some reason, they waited until the Democrats took over the House in order to make that happen, right? Remember, it was only a couple weeks ago, folks, that the Republicans had full control of Washington. They still, even after, even in the lame duck session, they still had full control in Washington, and they didn't get the wall then. So why is it that you say, okay, Democrats are now in charge of the House, we're going to get the wall now? I don't know which strategist came up with this and said, okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. 
you have to deal you have to play the cards that you have and the Republicans right now don't have a particularly strong hand they can't pass stuff in the Senate without Democratic help, and they certainly can't pass anything in the House without Democratic help. So you actually, not not that I'm in favor of Democratic policies, but you have to actually deal with what is. You can't deal with what you hope will be, and this game of brinksmanship is not working for anyone. And I'm surprised because I'll tell you, when a lot of people thought that President Trump was not going to be an ideologue about things that he was going to in fact be a deal maker and try and get deals done and there might be an opportunity with you know the new makeup of congress that he could deal with democrats and chuck schumer of course has a reputation as a deal maker as well and there would be a deal you know and he's kind of gone out of his way to try and divide chuck and nancy as it were i'm getting a little bit irritated by that because but I don't know, storming out of a meeting and tweeting bye-bye, and then he tweets and says, well, I didn't slam on the table, I did slam on the table, whatever it is, but it's a little bit juvenile to go ahead and host me in the White House and then walk out because, you know, there's nothing to talk about. Well, there is a lot to talk about. The American people are looking to leadership in Washington on both sides, but it isn't clear at all to me as to why the Democrats should give the president a victory on this. There's just absolutely, positively no incentive here. Um, They did have, there was a deal to be had about a year ago, I guess, a year or more ago, wall for DACA. If you remember, undocumented children, the dreamers, who are brought here as kids, and they would achieve status, achieve citizenship, eventually, and that deal fell apart. Let's go on to some other stuff, because I think we're going to have, hopefully, by next week, hopefully we'll see some kind of solution out of this. But uh, another consequence of the, and this comes down to a lot of, all of Washington, all the Republicans and everybody kind of following the president, waiting to see where he is. And as Mitch McConnell said, I'm not going to pass another bill that the president doesn't support because, of course, I don't want to have my members go ahead and go on the record in supporting something if the president, in fact, is not going to be law and it doesn't. And I get and I agree with him. Don't support something because, you know, you're not going to be able to override a presidential veto. So why take the political risk of doing that? And, you know, it's kind of the same way what we saw this week with John Bolton going to Turkey and President Erdogan, a NATO ally, unwilling to meet the national security advisor of the United States. Why? Because he's upset that the United States has changed course, essentially, on <coughs> excuse me, the Syria withdrawal. Because the president said, we're getting out of Syria right away, and the allies all complained, and Bolton said, we're not going out so fast, and it's unclear what American policy is. So Erdogan just figures if he ignores Bolton, he'll go to Trump, he'll go to the president, and he'll get what he wants, which is an American immediate withdrawal from Turkey, so that Turkey can go ahead and fight the Kurds, our Kurdish allies, and uh, defeat them or kill them or whatever it is. So he just figures, I'm not going to ignore Bolton, which is what a lot of, we see a lot of foreign powers have done over time, either ignored Rex Torreson, the Secretary of State, ignored H.R. McMaster, I mean, other figures, because they figure, okay, we'll just go straight to the president because the president kind of 
doesn't is in his own zone with regard to some of his decisions. I mean, of course, it seems very clear that the Syria, the withdrawal decision from Syria was made by himself and with no other input from anyone, it seems, other than Rand Paul. Um, the presidential allies in Congress, certainly Lindsey Graham was not consulted. Certainly, obviously, General Mattis was consulted, but overruled. And when you're not looking to allies and you're not looking to other people to build support for a certain policy, this is kind of what happens. So there is a necessary, and I know the president was elected to shake things up and to kind of do these types of things and lead with his gut and people like that and will do things a little bit differently and let's not follow the same game plan. But there is merit, tremendous merit towards building a process and having a process that works and including your allies in those decisions. Because you go ahead and you withdraw from Syria and you say, hey, you guys take it and we'll... And when the president says, okay, we can... Well, Iran, if Iran wants to fight ISIS, we'll let them do that. And Israel says, what are you talking about? And Saudi Arabia, of course, says, what are you talking about? How are we possibly going to allow... Iran to expand its influence. They've already got considerable influence in Syria. We're not going to allow them to expand that. That would be incredibly dangerous for our allies. And obviously, as a pro-Israel person, I'm sitting there and scratching my head and thinking, this can't be good for Israel. And in fact, it wasn't because when Bolton went to meet with Bibi in Israel, they went to the Middle East to talk about this. Everybody immediately kind of changed his mind. So, there is a need for a process, and the president does have this is this is in fact when he said this is no different from things that he promised to bring the troops home. Yes, he did. However, you also have to consider the context and the global political implications of doing some of these things and doing some of them precipitously <coughs> in other. News. It seems, in fact, that perhaps the Mueller investigation is going to start winding itself down. Uh, maybe those are the tea leaves. Everybody kind of said that. You know, Rod Rosenstein has said that he is going to leave the Justice Department. He had said to other people that he is not going to do that until Mueller seems to be finished. And we actually saw a major little tidbit of news with Paul Manafort this week. Uh, quite incredibly, his lawyers forgot to redact certain information that they certainly didn't want public, which is, in fact, that Paul Manafort, the Trump campaign manager, campaign chairman, whatever it was, but in fact, the campaign chief was giving polling data to Russian intelligence. Now, it happened to be somebody he'd worked with in the past, but this uh, person was a pro-Russian affiliated with Russian intelligence, and that came out in court documents that he was doing that. Now, I don't know what collusion is. I don't know what coordination is, the legal effects. This might not be a smoking gun that to show that there was actually in cahoots and there was like regular communication. But what on earth would you possibly be sending polling data about the U.S. election to Russians for? You're looking for advice? You, what, who are you sending? What is the point of sending that data? Campaigns guard polling data, particularly internal polling data. I mean, with the utmost zealousness, because there's a lot in there that you don't want other people to know. 
you don't you, everybody thinks oh the polls we know exactly what everything's public everything these polls that come out we know everything well there's a ton of data in polls that the public doesn't know about us in campaign world we don't tell people about there's all kinds of questions that we ask and certain testing of certain questions and the, where the electorate is on certain things and things we should focus on and areas of the country should focus on and certain themes that we should focus on and certain people that we should focus on. Those kinds of things are not shared. We never see the light of day. Why would we ever have a situation that we might give an opponent a little bit of an advantage by giving them data? Data is everything in politics and elections. And we know that the Trump campaign, particularly with digital data, did very effective work and very targeted work. Remember, I mean, the whole thing was about targeting some of these Rust Belt states and winning very narrow victories in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, or in Ohio, not so narrow. So you wouldn't send this to people. It's just not standard. It's not normal that you would go ahead and do this. And, you know, Paul Manafort is a shady figure. Let's just put it that way. Has been a shady figure, continues to be a shady figure. And how he came unvetted into the Trump orbit and became his campaign manager is just, uh, you know, that's one of those stories that we'll just have to love to he love to know what the internal scuttlebutt was around that. Is a, oh, yeah, let's hire Paul Manafort. The, wait. This is the same Paul Manafort who was working for the pro-Russian Ukrainian president? Oh, this is the same guy who's heavily in debt to Russian oligarchs? Oh, yeah, that's the same Paul Manafort who's been working for dictators around the world. Let's, let's, let's hire that guy. Oh, he's going to work for free? Why? Didn't anybody ask that question? Oh, he's going to work for free. Okay, we'll take him. Hired. Strange. Uh, Albany yesterday, the advent of one-party rule in the state of New York. Democrats now control the Assembly and the Senate by pretty significant margins. Control the governorship. It's going to be interesting to see the potential for internal conflict amongst the more progressive and the more establishment wings of the Democratic Party. Between suburban and city legislatures, legislators and how they handle some of those rifts between pressure on taxes and Democrats have always been in favor of heavy taxation. And speaking of heavy taxation... Our own New Yorker congresswoman celebrity, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, gets 60 minutes treatment, which is quite incredible when you come and you think about it. How many members of the House of Representatives get an interview on 60 minutes? And she, look, I, I think it's incredible that she, she won this race. And kudos to her for putting that campaign together to slay a uh, power broker like Joe Crowley. Not only was he in the House leadership, also the chairman of the county committee of Queens. You know, a true political heavyweight, and she took him down. Now, that is something, but in fact, she hasn't done anything. But yet she gets 60 minutes treatment. And 
the one thing that struck me, actually there were two things from that interview, and, and I think this is one is quite incredible. Anderson Cooper challenged her and said, well, what about your kind of looseness with the facts? And I'm paraphrasing. I don't have it verbatim in front of me. And she says, well, yeah, sometimes don't nitpick on every mistake, you know, the words that I make with regard to facts, because, of course, Democrats have tremendous problem with, with the, the president, with Trump's looseness with the facts. And I have a problem with it, too. You know, I, I want people who actually state things that they actually state the, the truth. And the same thing with, like, the ter- 4,000 terrorists crossing the southern border, which was not true even remotely. So why shouldn't Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez be, be held to the same number, to the same standard? You know, and she says, well, it's nowhere near as bad as the way the president talks about immigrants and then goes on in the thing about that she thinks he's a racist. Which you might think, though, but that has nothing to do, you don't respond to every question of why don't you, why aren't you trying to get to, you know, tell the truth all the time with regard to facts and figures. And, well, my excuse is the president's a racist. Uh, Okay. Okay, well, in that case, you know, just say whatever you want. And then, of course, Anderson Cooper asked her about her proposal for 70%, for a 70% tax bracket. And she gives a lecture on what marginal tax rates are. You know, oh, we're not talking about 70% the whole way through. We're talking about 70% over a certain threshold number. Oh, you know, Anderson you know, should have said, oh, I had no idea that there was such a thing as marginal tax rates. You know, when France tried to have marginal tax rates of 70%, people, millionaires, they left the country. They left France in mass and went other elsewhere in Europe and other to other countries because nobody is going to say, hey, you know what? I want to give the government 70 cents on every dollar. Let me just keep making more money this year in order to pay, the, you know, to give the government more money. Why would I give this government more money when, it is, when it's shut down? And when they do things that are just absurd, like it's what, uh, what's going on now. But, you know, that her answer to that is, well, let me give you a lecture that it's not really 70%. Well, 70%, in fact, if it is at a certain point, you might as well just retire for the year and don't bother making more money, right? I mean, what's the point? And today, on a more local micro thing, speaking of these types of policies or getting paid for not working, if you will, or not working because you're not getting paid, on the flip side of that, Mayor de Blasio having his annual State of the City address this morning, and his big thing yesterday is 10 days of paid leave, personal days, that anybody can take for any reason at their job in all companies, I think over 10 employees here. So basically just to say, hey, 10 days off no matter what, no matter what you do. Not like even a scheduled thing, like I have to go ahead and do that, but I got to get 10 days, which is essentially two weeks a year. Now, I think that people should be able to negotiate that and for themselves, and that's a good thing, and not everybody has that, and workers, and of course, but there has to be a certain amount of freedom in this country for businesses to be able to operate. And not all businesses are evil, particularly in places of low unemployment that it's hard to attract workers. I mean, this is just this is just run amok. Let's pay people to not work. And businesses should have to do that. You know, government has done that for a long time, but let's now mandate that businesses should do that as well. And the other 
thing, which is just also in the bizarre things, $100 million for the Health and Hospitals Corporation of New York City, which is an incredibly dysfunctional organization, was teetering on the verge of bankruptcy. Let's let them, so they will now cover undocumented New Yorkers and those who don't have health insurance because they're too young. They don't think they're, you know, so-called invincibles. Let's let's have them come to the New York Health and Hospitals Corporation and they will will give them free health care. So is there not an incentive now for people who have and paying for insurance coverage to now drop that in order so that they have that safety net? I, I just don't. Somehow these things, it's like, do we think them through? Do we really think that this is where we need to efficiently spend our tax dollars and your tax dollars. I mean, it almost goes back to the couple of weeks ago, the proposal for $10 million to allow New Yorkers to start marijuana businesses. I mean, let's just take people's hard-earned tax dollars and throw them at these poorly conceived progressive ideas because they're good progressive ideas and we got, and you know we have to go ahead and do that and we have to make New York this progressive beacon around the world and when in fact a lot of these things are really just a symbol of dysfunctional government so not to depress everybody too much this week here on the Nachum Siegel Network but in fact it's been a very puzzling and troubling week governmentally and politically so that's it for this week. We will see you next week here on Spin Class. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.